SUAS News Podcast, actually kickoff of year two, the evolution of the SUAS News Podcast series, where we interview newsmakers and discuss the news, applications, and science relevant to the global unmanned technologies community. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan. Let's say hello and welcome to our co-host, Mr. Gene Robinson. Hello, Patrick. Well, it's good to be back on the air after our little two-week hiatus. It is. Things have been kind of busy over here. Um, I know that uh, things have probably been busy for you over there in Texas. There's a lot going on. Are you on vacation? (laughs) I wish. Yes. Well, uh, it was a busy week, but even still, we did not have a podcast, but uh, me and Gene got to participate in a super group call. What what did you think of that, Gene? You know, that was pretty phenomenal, you know, to have some of those guys that were on the podcast in the past and then be able to get them all on a conference call together and have that wealth of knowledge to sit down and, and talk about all the things that they've done, all the things that they're going to do, the problems that they've encountered. Wow, that was just an amazing conference. And it went well over an hour, didn't it? It did. You know, uh, everybody was really busy, but that was an excellent opportunity uh, to hear current uses, future uses, issues to overcome uh, for some widespread utilization and expansion of programs within those different groups. Um, I think that was kind of uh, I was kind of the million dollar phone call for you know the right company if they were on board on that one. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I definitely see uh, some of the future uh, possibilities for this technology and especially uh, let's say some contracting type to type of opportunities. Uh, definitely seems inside the gold mine. I know we're uh, we got one tentatively scheduled for another six months from now. And uh, I'm looking forward to that. I'd really like to do something out in the field prior to that, but uh, we'll just have to see how that works out. I, I think you'll get that opportunity. I think so, too. Looking forward to that. Uh, I think that could be very enlightening. Um, oh, I did want to talk about the uh, Small Unmanned Systems Business Exposition that uh, we're putting on. The SUS News and a couple of other sponsors are putting on. Um, you can go to SUS. B-E-X-P-O.com and check that out. Great lineup of speakers, business, commercial use only, no military, no police. It's going to be good. Just some real heavy hitters. That's July 25th to 26th in San Francisco. Um, sure to hit that one. Gene will be speaking. Any other stories catch your, uh, catch your attention this week, Gene? Wow, there's been several, Patrick. First off, I want to give uh, kudos to our northern Mounties up there, northern neighbors in Canada. They got their first live SAR recovery using an unmanned aircraft, so good on them. They uh, they used a multi-rotor. They used a multi-rotor and uh, a thermal imager, and they found the guy, and it would have very likely have cost him his life had they not had that little unmanned aircraft out there, of course. Patrick, you know I'm a big proponent and have worked in the the search and rescue industry for a long time, so I want to give a tip of the hat to the Mounties for being able to go out there and do that and and save an individual's life, so congratulations to them. I second that congratulations. 
other than that, another thing that was this popped up on our radar scope, and we've watched it go through both the uh, the House and the Senate in here in Texas, and that is House Bill 912. I do believe 921. I can't remember the number no, now, but uh, I'm pretty sure it's 912. Yeah, it's waiting 912, for the governor's signature, right? It is now waiting for the government governor's signature, and let me tell you what, I'm about as exasperated as I can be with the due process because uh, uh, Representative Gooden uh, proposed his new law uh, and uh, didn't quite have all the facts that he probably should have. I know that his representative had been uh, out and had spoken with several uh, FPV groups and aerial photographers and uh, they got quite the education in the process, and there were a number of amendments made to it. And unfortunately, what we've done is we've now have a law that is potentially a law that uh, is going to do nothing but confuse the issue even further on what legitimate use of, of aerial photography or unmanned aerial photography is all about. So I, I'm, you know, a little exasperated over that and uh, just don't know really which way to go on this one except for to ask the governor to veto it which i think that's unlikely uh the, the texas process is is even if the governor doesn't do anything but veto it if he does nothing it's still going to become a law so i'm afraid that that may be the case but anyway there is the first block that's fallen into place in the 39 states that have some sort of legislation and uh, i'm afraid a precedent is going to be set and it could be quite deleterious to the industry as a whole. What do you think? I would concur with that. I read it over. I read the language over. And there are some, um, let's say, vague references in there. I, I don't, you know, like if I was to really look at it, I'd go, hmm, okay, well, I could probably still operate. However, I think it kind of puts the operator at a disadvantage that you kind of have to prove that you are not um, kind of violating someone's privacy or also kind of prove that you're not breaking the intention of that law, which is which is kind of vague and arbitrary in my book. That's kind of what I get out of it. Me. It does. I wouldn't want to be somewhere where um, I was trying to prove that I wasn't doing something wrong. Uh, that would be a hard one. Hard one to weasel out of. The other thing I noticed in there, and I think this might be a, uh, something that occurred because of the SUAS news, and that is I've noticed that they, they have a clause in there about uh, photographs used as evidence in, uh, in court cases. And I, I have a feeling that that stems right from the River of Blood story that we broke at the SUAS news. Your comment. I think it's quite co coincidental that uh, Representative Gooden is from the area that that, in that occurred in, so I don't think I need to say much more. Coinky dinky do, or uh, you know, I don't know. I do think uh, it's kind of interesting that we're you know you you have a situation where you're diving toxic waste in my book into the drinking water supply, and we're more worried about the privacy in a court case. Something, something's a little askew there, but I wouldn't want to be in a position where I'm defending myself against that law. It's a little, it's a little vague, um, you know. And you would probably uh, get out of it, or you know, be found innocent or whatever. But it's going to cost you some money, and it's uh, like you said. I, I definitely think it's a precedent that's not good for us. 
We'll just have to wait and see. We will have to wait and see. All right. Now, um, moving along, uh, we have our, 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 a guest today, and uh, I met our first guest a few years ago. We've spoken over the years about today's topic, and uh, the last time we met was at UAS West 2013, um, and our first guest is Mr. Chuck Johnson. He manages and uh, works with people, some of the show's prior guests. But before we bring him on, I do want to say we put up a, a PowerPoint presentation that he did at the UAS West 2013 on our SlideShare um, site, which is slideshare.net front slash SUAS News. And you can um, find his presentation and uh, follow along. It's Unmanned Aircraft Systems Integration into the National Airspace System Project. And so without further ado, let's bring on our guest, Mr. Chuck Johnson. Hey, Patrick. Hey, Gene. Uh, hey, thanks for the opportunity to be part of this podcast and discuss some of what NASA is doing uh, with regard to UAS. Well, you're exactly the kind of guy that we want to try and get on this program um, and, and, and bring to light some of the work and issues and uh, problems and solutions to uh, get this community in the air and working. So this is, this is really right up our alley. And uh, we're glad that you could take time to be on today. So as we usually do, uh, I want to bring a guest on. I'd like you to, if you could, uh, please uh, give us an overview of your work leading up to this project and, and a little bio history of you and unmanned aircraft systems. Okay, so uh, uh, a couple things that, and, and I know that you have quite an informed uh, group of listeners, um, which is really wonderful. Um, uh, so I think most of them know, as you do, that NASA has a long and rich history of working with unmanned aircraft. Um, whether termed unmanned systems, unmanned aircraft, remotely piloted vehicles, drones, whatever. We've been researching and flying them uh, in the NASA and in restrict restricted airspace for the better part of 50 years. Um, so it's a very long history. Um, for my part, um, uh, I've been involved in aviation for quite some time, specifically UAS for about the last 10 years. I actually started my career as an air traffic controller um, with the FAA back in 1982. Um, and after 11 years, including five at Los Angeles Terminal Radar Approach Control and a couple of years at, well. at the headquarters, uh, I resigned from the FAA and went to work at MIT Lincoln Laboratory doing uh, human factors research, um, mostly on air traffic control decision support tools. Um, and and at, in 1999, I actually left MIT and went back to work for the government for NASA uh, at NASA Ames Research Center up in uh, on Moffett Field in in Mountain View, um, in in like uh, I, I think it was somewhere around uh, um, July of 2001, I went to NASA headquarters. I spent a couple of years there, working as a partnership manager between NASA and the FAA. And it was there that I got um, involved pretty heavily in UAS. Uh, I was the the NASA headquarters lead for uh, a project we had called Access Five, which um, um, I helped in the formulation and and then started that project. And we ran that for about uh, two through two and a half years um, until it was canceled. So that was back in the 03 to 05 time frame. Um, and then after that, I went out to Dryden Flight Research Center from headquarters, um, where I currently work. And it was back in about 2009 that we started advocacy for this project that I now so We got final approval from OMB to fund it in 2011. 
Um, and I and since August of 2011, I've been the the man. Sorry, August of 2010, I've been the manager of this uh, particular project called the um, U.S. Integration in the NAS. So that's sort of a quick and dirty background for how I got into UAS. And uh, it's it's a long one, but it's a good one. Now, um, you know, you, you touched on something. I was hoping maybe you could just uh, kind of elucidate on maybe a little clips note nutshell on the Access 5 thing because, uh, I mean, I know what it is, but uh, a lot of people may have kind of just heard about it, but it was it was a while ago and they don't understand what that was. Could, could, could you maybe uh, fill us in a little bit on the Access 5 thing? Sure. Um, so the Access 5 project uh, was um, NASA's real first opportunity to get into uh, the role of – oops, sorry about that background noise um, – to right. get into the role of, uh, of, of trying to um, – uh, enable access to um, to the national airspace system, and the the um, the activity that we started under this project was really a public-private partnership with industry, where um, the at the time the six manufacturers of high endurance, uh, high altitude, long endurance uh, UAVs came to NASA and proposed an activity, um, a joint activity, where industry would fund part of it and NASA would fund part of it. So it was an interesting and unique um, approach that we uh, we went down the path of, of working with industry to try to enable just a segment, like the first bite of a very large uh, elephant, um, the first uh, uh, access that, that we thought could be achievable within five years, thus Access 5. Um, and that was high altitude, long endurance UAVs um, that are going to operate in, in uh, airspace that was generally uh, above 45,000 feet, so the really high altitude, long endurance. Um, and we thought that could be one of the easiest pathways to take to, to, to put our toe in the water and get some access for some aircraft to um, to the national airspace. That project um, was um, run over the, the two and a half years or so. Um, and, and, and keep in mind, this was a sort of new uh, frontier even for the FAA. They, this was before there was an, uh, an RTCA special committee on UAS and before the FAA had established uh, an unmanned aircraft program office, um, which they did during the first couple of years uh, of Access 5. So we really uh, started the ball rolling um, with not just not just within NASA, but even within the FAA, to really start to uh, open the eyes of, of those involved uh, that there was this emerging need for uh, U.S. access. So that's kind of the the framework for Access Five, and it and and even though we went down the path where NASA, uh, due to some other uh, constraints, um, ended up canceling that project, um, it didn't take us very long to get our 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 name back on the table. Um, when we started up this project uh, on U.S. integration. Right, right. Well, that's some great background because, you know, <clears throat> like I said, some people may have heard uh, the Access 5 in passing, and they don't really know what that is, but I think that that was helpful there. And then a couple of the companies that were involved with that was like, what, Aurora Flight Sciences, Aerovironment, Scaled Composites, uh, was it Northrop Grumman and, and General Atomics? Okay. Yeah, scaled was was not one of them, uh, but they weren't. the others. Yeah, Air Environment, uh, Northrop Grumman, uh, Boeing, um, uh, Lockheed Martin, um, Aurora Flight Sciences, and General Atomics. Those were the companies. So, uh, so there were six companies. They they banded together under uh, an organization called Unite, which uh, mm -hmm. still exists. 
um, but they uh, and th- and they were the ones that came to um, to NASA and then ultimately to the FAA as one industry voice that represented high endurance long uh, sorry high altitude long endurance aircraft. And that was one of the things that the FAA really wanted. They wanted a single voice, which is really one of the big challenges today. Is there is no single industry voice um, that can say this is what our needs are. So, um, so this this is one of the complications as we move forward um, in this pro- project and trying to to gather the right uh, amount of of uh, data for the FAA to uh, allow access to the NASA. You don't have the common voice that you would hope to have, um, which we did back. Then. So, and you, and do you think that uh, what what why do you maybe think that that is? You like to to guess? Is it diversity of, of systems and and missions? Is it uh, just there no no players? No, I I, well, I think it is that um, there's so many different and and if you think about the the potential uses for unmanned aircraft, um, it's wide and broad and uh, it's hard to get consensus on what the next step needs to be, which is what the FAA was hoping for, you know, out of industry. Um, And and so everyone has their own interest in this, and and it's difficult uh, for the FAA to to allocate the resources that are required to answer the problems because they can't do everything all at once. So they have to figure out what things to do first. And it's hard to get consensus in the industry on what the first steps are um, when you don't have uh, when you have everyone uh, looking at it from a different perspective. Um, and right. I think the FAA has made some progress in things like you know the the small UAS and NPRM at least when that does get released. Um, they've made some progress in terms of RTCA and and now uh, RTCSA 228. So they're making some steps, but they they have to do it incrementally because they just can't do it all at once. It's just impossible. Right, right. Well, I do say that uh, there is probably, uh, from my experience as part of the um, aerospace integration effort, I will say that uh, you know there there are some different, um, definitely different perspectives on what that elephant that you were referencing uh, looks like. It's kind of like the parable of the five blind monks describing the elephant. One's got the trunk and one's got the tail and, you know, so on. Uh, and it's definitely difficult, but I think it's uh, it's also something that's been hindered by, what uh, you know, uh, advocacy through business plans. Um, you know, of course, they say, well, we don't want to do that. We don't want to, like, you know, look at existing products or whatever, but that's, in my mind, uh, well, from my experience, not even in my mind, but from my experience, I, that's definitely one of the problems. There is no objective Hey, let's you know now it fits on this product and and these are the missions and whatever else and I think that that's really hindered it but that's a whole another discussion for a whole another show so uh, you know moving into your presentation which like I did say was up at the slideshare uh, dot um, suas news um, I, I'd kind of like to go through this uh, a little bit and and you know you talk about a problem set and whatnot in your presentation. Um, and, and most listeners are aware of the issues that prohibit the wide-scale integration of UAS into the NAS. But for continuity, uh, could you give us some, maybe another uh, nutshell civil barrier issue, if that's possible? Yeah. So I think that the uh, yeah, sure. I, I think that there are, there are a couple of, of angles to look at it. Uh, you know, one is certainly there are some technology challenges. There there are barriers that need to be broken down, particularly as they apply to um, to the federal aviation regulations, like 
you know, 91.113 for, in, in essence, seeing a void and well clear. So there are some technical challenges that have to be addressed there. Um, some of those would also in, include policy or procedural changes. But, but there's also, um, for, for, from the civil access side, um, there's the public acceptance barrier, which includes things like privacy. I think that's one of the big um, and really difficult uh, barriers to break down. And, and you're a public agency like NASA or like DOD or like DHS. You know, you can always say we're doing it for science or we're doing it for, for uh, uh, public defense or, or, you know, homeland defense. Um, and and it's, so you get through, you know, the, the public side says, okay, you know, we understand that. But, but why would we allow these things to, to fly, these things that are deemed by many as being unsafe or being, uh, you know, only used for spying or killing people? Why in the world would we allow those? So getting through that public acceptance uh, barrier is one of the big challenges that we as a community, whether it's us, you know, NASA, us as a, as a public agency, or the industry at large, we have to overcome that. And we have to come up with common logical messaging um, that, that can be explained in terms that the, that the general public understands and can resonate with. What are the real values of these unmanned aircraft? Why is it, is it, uh, is, is that going to trump any of the concerns about things like privacy and, and uh, spoofing and every, every other uh, thing that comes up that, that would be a barrier. And I think that's one of the things that, that, we, that we as a community need to focus on. But from a technology standpoint, which is where NASA has a big role, um, as I mentioned, we own and operate uh, a lot of unmanned aircraft. We have about 100 unmanned aircraft. Um, but we also are on the side of, of doing the research that's described in, in that presentation. Um, and, and so a lot of those things um, are, we believe, long poles in the tent technology-wise to get access. So certainly some sort of a sense and avoid system that um, could be compliant with uh, the, the rule for, uh, for see and avoid uh, and or well clear. That's one of the long poles. Communications, um, there is no, I mean, there is some civil spectrum that, has been allocated as part of the World Radio Conference, but no one's no one's looked deep into that to see if it's scalable and secure. Um, and then there's also the human factors implications of all this, which which are really pretty profound. It's not you, you no longer have the pilot in the cockpit. So what what does that mean in terms of human factors? Um, and we think that a lot of these challenges can't just be solved as individual components but they have to be solved as an integrated um, solution and be tested in an integrated way so that you're not just looking at the COM by itself, but you're looking at the COM uh, with latencies that would, be, um, that would be generated and how does that have uh, implications for a sensitive void type system, what are the human factors, uh, uh, characteristics of that, all of that has to be done in an integrated way. So that's why, and you, you'll see in that, that presentation, that we're approaching this as, as really an integrated systems problem and not a, a bunch of component problems. Well, I think you're, you know you've got a good handle on uh, what what the issues are, and uh, definitely have your work cut out for you uh, with with some of those technology issues. Gene, did you did you have a couple of comments? Yeah, actually, I think probably the one that's looming the largest for me, Chuck, is that you issued the privacy and the public perception issue. 
uh, unfortunately, the only thing that the public really gets to see is a picture of the Predator B with the uh, Hellfire missiles hanging from it, and it really has a negative connotation. And I, I really think that that needs to be addressed first, or we're going to have a hard time getting out of the starting blocks. Um, NASA has always had a pretty good image, you know, with the space program and, and with the PR that you guys have got going. So if, if anybody's got a shot at doing it, you guys have got the best shot at doing it. Yeah, I, so, Gene, I totally agree with you. I think that that is one of the real uh, initial stumbling blocks that, that has to be uh, successfully addressed, and, and I think that NASA plays a key role there. But I, but I do think that it's the community. It's not just NASA by itself. And this is why, you know, we're working with a lot of um, uh, organizations like AVSI to make sure that they're, that, the, that the good news stories, whether they come out of NASA, and we've got a lot of those, or other parts of the community, um, like the one you were just talking about with the the, uh, the Canadian Mounties and the search and rescue. Uh, those are the kind of good news stories that need to be uh, pushed to you know the front page. Um, that that really people need to understand you know how it is that these um, that these air, unmanned aircraft can really help humanity. And I think on top of that, and this this is something that we've been working with at NASA is sort of try to tell the story of the future applications and what the benefits are. So I think everyone, you know, can envision the Jetson days where everyone's got a personal air vehicle that's, you know, fully autonomous. Um, that's a long ways away, though, though we believe it's, it's something that, you know, we should be thinking about. But it's those stepping stones that get described um, of how you make uh, unmanned aircraft more and more valuable to society. Um, and I think that, you know, just in leveraging off the search and rescue things, I mean, it's not unreasonable to think in the foreseeable future with the advances in, in unmanned system and in ro robotics that you could have a situation where you do the search and rescue, but, but when you have a, a patient that is that can't get on the aircraft by himself, you actually could deploy off this unmanned aircraft a robotic doctor to go do what emergency, you know, procedures are required to, in essence, stop the bleeding, and then actually transport the the passenger, the the person that is injured, onto the vehicle and fly them back to a hospital. Well, that's a just a, a small extension of the current uses of unmanned aircraft for search and rescue. And I think people can can visualize how that could be a real benefit to society if that's what you're going to use unmanned aircraft for. So I think that there's a there's a way to tell the story. Um, in terms of not just what we're doing today and, and what the good is, but what we can do tomorrow if we enable access to the NAS for these aircraft. I concur with that. And, you know, I've, I've done my, uh, I went right in, you know, to the belly of the beast. You said you uh, worked at uh, Moffitt. Me and uh, actually Chad Partridge was go have gone to uh, UC Berkeley School of Law and uh, talked about this subject and also the Berkeley Drone Town Hall meeting. And, uh, we we had our work cut out for us, Chuck. <laughs> we went in there. Yeah, it was. Uh, I, I wrote an article about it. it. Was I was I was kind of amazed, but you know, um, the topics that you're talking about were were met with uh, people going, "Hey, you know, that's cool." I mean, you know, I say, "Hey, uh, we're here. We're, we want to talk about feeding the hungry world." You know, oh yeah, that's cool. We want to talk about feeding the hungry world. Want to talk about anti deforestation efforts or anti poaching efforts. There's a lot of good, and unfortunately, as a community, I think this community's kind of sat back on the DOD laurels and, you know, it was easy money and all the rest of that, and we weren't 
talking about these other uses over the past few years. They really took a backseat. And, and, you know, I think it really hurt the uh, the industry as a whole. I, uh, there were some of us out there talking about that, but that all fell on deaf ears. Story for another podcast. But I do want to say, and I do want to give some, some kudos, is we had uh, we had Mike Logan on and we had Jeff Bland on. And uh, that was a, it was a while ago, but we had them on and they were talking about some of the uses for uh, RPA for science or whatever. And that was our most popular show with almost 27,000 downloads. So, well, I, well, both those guys are very experienced and knowledgeable. And, and uh, uh, Mike Logan in particular, who is really associated with our project, Jeff Bland mm-hmm. is more on the science side. Those guys, um, they, they know what they're doing and they, they understand the value of, of unmanned aircraft and, and can speak about it in terms that most of your listeners can can really resonate with. Absolutely. Those guys, they're great guys, smart guys. Met them on the, uh, they were doing some work when I was on the uh, small UAS arc that the FAA put together. And those guys really had some some good ideas. Uh, you know, Logan's a sharp, sharp guy, he's an engineer, Um so it was great to have them on and talk about that. And it, obviously with those numbers, um, what that suggested to me was uh, that people outside of our direct community were also very interested in what NASA was doing, uh, like you're saying, in the future, thinking about the future, thinking about what these guys are doing. We actually had uh, Jeff on a couple weeks ago talk about that science work they were doing down there, flying in the, the, the plume of the uh, volcano in Costa Rica. You know, perfect application. You don't have to put anyone at risk. Uh, you get all the sulfur dioxide samples you, your little heart desires. Um, and we'd like to see more of that and some of the stuff that uh, you guys are doing. The science side, though, are, 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 is very interesting, but also the, the work that you're doing is really interesting. And I don't want to get too far off of that. Um, let's, you know, maybe some of the capturable goals and objectives for your project. Maybe you could speak to that a little bit. Yeah, so one of the keys, so for, first off, you know, what we are trying to do is we want to make sure that, um, you know, for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, we're, we're all civil servants and we're, we do our research uh, with public dollars that we get, you know, from that are allocated to, to us from Congress. So we want to make sure that we are doing unique work um, that really NASA is well-equipped to do. Um, so we want to capitalize on on those unique ca- uh, capabilities that NASA has. Um, and and in this case, as I mentioned, we, we think one of the real uh, important things that we can bring to the table as NASA is our ability to do this integrated system-level testing. Um, and so uh, in order to eliminate uh, or reduce, in some cases, those, those technical barriers, um, we, we're taking the approach that it has to be done in an integrated manner and not um, in, in a component way. And so um, we're trying to develop um, this, you know, what we refer to a lot as a body of evidence, which really is a lot of different things. It's, it's validated data, it's algorithms um, that come down, it could come down to recommendations. Um, but we're trying to get this body of evidence collected um, that would allow decision makers, whether they be a standards organization like RTCA or ASTM or um, the FAA, to make decisions um, that would enable access to the NAS. So that's a big part of what we're trying to do is collect that data in a, in, and organize it in a manner that those decision makers can use it to actually say, okay, this is safe enough. 
right? So NASA, you're you know somewhat of a, a of an unbiased, uh, honest broker. You've gone out, you've done all this work, you've collected this data, you've built a case that would that we can take and say, yeah, they're these aircraft are safe enough in these conditions. And so that's what we're trying to do here, uh, just generally. Um, so so that that's one of the big uh, you know, statements that we're trying to make as part of this project. We're looking at other things, um, help the FAA in terms of, of new and creative uh, methodologies for airworthiness requirements. Um, we're certainly spending a lot of time and a lot of focus on trying to get to a true national roadmap where, where we can lay out who needs to do what, by when, um, how much it's going to cost, and how you're going to manage it. And those are all necessary things, particularly for us as a public agency, to figure out how to get the right funding, but for the community of interest, including industry, to say, this is what needs to be done, I'm going to step up and do it. But unless there is some form of a, of a national access roadmap, um, then you're not able to do that. So those are, those are some of the key things that, that we're working on to shape the technologies and get those technologies into uh, actually into implementation. Hmm. Uh, that's pretty interesting. Now, when when you're when you're talking about this, are you? Uh, I mean, it sounds like it's a, a pretty uh, encompassing approach. But uh, is this kind of a holistic thing as as far as the let's say spectrum spectrum of aircraft? I mean, are you looking at uh, everything shooting for that September 2015 deadline? Open the NAS up to all UAS, or are you are you taking the smaller bite of the elephant and saying, you know, okay, well, we're talking about 55 pounds of down, 150 kilos and down. And where, what, what are you guys trying to capture? So it's a, it's a, great, uh, a great question that leverages a couple different things. One is the, is the, is the language that's in the legislation um, doesn't say all access for all aircraft by 2016 or 2015, rather. Um, it, it's talking about safe integration. And so the FAA's approach to what they're going to do for safe integration is probably very different than what's, what some people might perceive. Um, and they're doing it based on that, you know, small bite, right? So they're looking at a couple different things that they can do by 2015, by September 30, 2015, um, including the small U.S. rule and including uh, opening up Class A airspace to um, to larger uh, unmanned aircraft. So, so that's kind of the 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 stepping in position for the FAA to say we're going to meet the legislation by enabling safe access to some segments of the airspace based on um, based on certain criteria, certain equipage. So, there, there's nobody that thinks, um, at least no one that I know, that thinks that we could have this by 2015. It's just not okay, well, uh, not possible that safely. Okay, and, you know, that was exactly the answer I was hoping for, and you hit the nail on the head because, you know, I guess the circles that you're traveling in are uh, maybe a little bit more realistic or more in the know. But this, you know, you just, this is the kind of goal that you get on this show because there's a lot of folks, I've, I've been in the Bay Area here doing um, uh, speaking engagements, talking about uh, NAS integration and uh, these uh, unmanned aircraft in the NAS, and there's a large group of people who believe that September of 2015 is like, you know, you remember that you might have seen the movie where they have all the wagons lined up and they blow the whistle or shoot the gun and the, the western westward ho land grab is on and it's all good and you can do whatever you want in 2015. And uh, I, I, I was kind of surprised, too, to hear that. Uh, I was like, huh, where did you hear that? <laughs> Maybe I didn't get the memo. 
I don't know. Yeah, thank goodness that's not the way it's going to happen because that there's no way to do that safely in the time frame. Uh, the FAA, whose primary job is is safety of the national airspace, um, is is definitely going down the path where they will make sure that these aircraft are safe before they enter the national airspace. And and that's why the incremental approach is the only way to do it. Um, and so for our part, while we are doing some work on small U.S., we're doing a lot of work on trying to come up with what the, the requirements are for a sense and avoid system, which would be manifest in the early time period on a large aircraft. But certainly, if if you define what the requirements are, then it's up to industry to kind of figure out how to miniaturize that or how to meet the requirements through other methods of compliance with smaller aircraft. So at least we're taking the first step at something very uh, manageable and, and obtainable in a time frame of this project. Now, I want to step back just for a second and talk about the project in that um, unlike many NASA uh, activities that we have in research where it just goes on forever and you spin off products as, as time goes on, this project has a finite time frame. In, in September 30th of 2016, the project will be discontinued. We, we have on our charge to get everything we're going to get accomplished by the end of fiscal 16, and then we're done. The project's over. Mm -hmm. NASA may have some other project after that, but this project will be done. So everything that we have in on our in our portfolio has to be completed and and in essence handed over to be implemented by the end of 2016. So we're looking at very um, bite-sized pieces that that can reasonably be accomplished in that time frame, and that's why we are looking at developing the requirements for a sensitive voice system and for a communication system and some of the human factors interactions. But we're not looking at uh, a solution that's going to work, um, that we're going to take to uh, to the point that it's implementable for every aircraft in the system. Well, that makes sense. I think that uh, unless you had a, you know, a large army of, you know, engineers, I don't think you could accomplish all that in that time frame. But I do kind of like that. Um, very interesting look. And I, and I want to give Gene uh, another chance. Gene, comments? Sorry about uh, uh, you unmute there, so I wouldn't uh, have the machinery going in the background. Sorry about that. <laughs> no problem, no problem. Uh, yeah, any comments on that? Quite, quite honestly, I missed that one. Sorry. Oh, you know. Okay. Well, we were just uh, talking about uh, you know the the approach, and it was. Uh, I think it makes sense. It's pragmatic. Now, you know, launching back in here, uh, Chuck. I, I notice on slide eight and nine you have uh, some references to the RTCA and the different working groups, uh, one through four. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm doing another story here. You did kind of allude to that, too, in the, in the beginning. Um, and it looks like SC-203 is, is going to get an extreme makeover and go to SC-228. And... Um, is that what does that mean to the project? Is that are we going to like restructure and refocus, or is it just we're going to change the name and march forward? Do you, do you know? Um, no, it's not going to be a name change. So, I, so I think that uh, first off, uh, when RTCSC two or three was stood up, um, they were given a very difficult task um, of of really looking at you know everything UAS all at the same time coming up with a minimum aviation system performance standard for the whole ball of wax. And then they whittled it down a little bit to look at, to focus in, in certain areas, which was a good thing. 
but when SC203 was stood up, NASA was in the game providing data. And so um, the, the anticipation was that we would provide the data to SC203 um, to have them validate their masks. Um, well, unfortunately, NASA dropped out of the game um, and only recently came back. So there are many in the community that, that you know, thought that 203 wasn't making very good progress. Uh, in reality, they, they, they actually continued to have a forum where many things were discussed and, and many, uh, you know, a, a lot of progress was made in a lot of different areas. That aside, um, a, a new decision was made by RTCA fairly recently that they would they would uh, develop they would come out with the masks um, to the to the greatest extent possible and get those published and then sunset 203 and start up a new activity that would be looking at the minimum operational performance standards the MOPS um, for sense and avoid and for command and control communication and so they they have now sunset they're in the process of the last transition, Sunset 203, and stood up a new committee, 228, with new leadership, with a new terms of reference to really get to a, um, a MOPS by, at least for part of it, by 2016, um, which happens to coincide very well with our project so that we, we're going to be feeding that data that we would have fed to 203 now to 228 with a slightly different twist in not just going after the aviation system performance standards but the operational performance standards so that at some point in maybe a year or two after that, the FAA could, could come out with, um, assuming they accept the recommendations of 228, could come out with um, a, a rule or uh, a TSO that would allow a manufacturer to build a box that could meet those sense and avoid requirements and or those communication requirements. So it's, a, it's, a, um, it's the next step and it's the next logical step um, that 203 could have taken on, but instead they decided to repackage it um, and make it more focused on specifically getting to the MOPS. So that's what's kind of happened with 228. 228s, um, I believe the terms of reference were approved uh, maybe yesterday. Um, so I think that they're ready to move out. Um, they've got uh, they've got the leadership team that's already been um, established and vetted and approved. And so I think that's you know we're going to move forward on that. So and we're going to play a really key key role there in making sure that 228 has that body of evidence that I talked about, so that they can validate their recommendations to the FAA. Right, right. And, um, you know, I, I would kind of, I'm going to just ask you this question. Do you think that there's uh, some of the, some of the, let's say, larger players in this are already working on that magical box that are working on that magical box on their own and in the dark? Yeah, so we know quite a few of those, uh, and they're part of the community of interest, so we want to leverage all that. And, and so, so to the extent that we're leveraging that we're within the public entities, DOD, NASA, and FAA are working very closely together, but we're also working with the likes of General Atomics. Um, there, there are a, a number of others um, uh, that, are, that are building equipage already, um, mostly for due regard for the DOD, but building equipage already that, that can be leveraged. And, and, of course, we're also leveraging the, the work we've got with Rockwell Collins on the radio side. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I had kind of known that, but uh, I, I think that's interesting. You know, we didn't really get into it. Uh, you know, the ADSB. We had some people on the show. We talked about the ADSB. Um, we got about a minute left. Do you think you could give us thirty seconds on what uh, the promise of ADSB? I'm sorry, the promise of ADSB. 
Yes. Like yes, sir. So, so. I think we all kind of have seen a lot of different research that's been done on ADSB and the fact that, um, in, in my mind, and I think in, in the minds of many, ADSB is certainly part of the, the sweetest solutions that could be used to get to sense and avoid. But in and of itself, it is not the solution. Um, there are a number of reasons why um, I, I think that, you know, a small amount of research can discern that. I think that there have been tremendous activities uh, by you know organizations like MITRE with LDCAP, and they've gone out and they have demonstrated that that ADSB is is uh, a, a viable risk reducer. Um, but but again, it's not you know even if we mandated equipage for every aircraft in the system, uh, of which some couldn't even comply, of course, just like with a, with uh, with uh, any other you know like mode C transponder. Um, mm-hmm. But even if we did that, you'd still have to to get to the point where an unmanned aircraft could be separated from an, air, an aircraft that somehow lost electrical and didn't, and the right. ASB wasn't working. And so, so by itself, it's not a solution, but it certainly is part of a risk reducer that you could say that if you have other things, including ADSB, your risk is going to be lower um, of having some sort of a, a, of a collision. Right. Well, and that was kind of unfair of me to throw that ADSB question to you with uh, so little time to go. But as always, these programs, you think, oh, hey, you know, 45 minutes, oh, that's forever. But uh, really, it goes by ultra quick soon as we start getting into it. But I do want to thank you, uh, Mr. Johnson, for coming on this week and being our guest. It was uh, very informative. I want to also say, you know, if there's anything that we can ever do, um, you know, get out the word or or any information or whatever else that uh, we can help you with, I want to extend that. We're always happy to help. And uh, being happy happy to be involved, and uh, I'll keep you in mind uh, as we go forward. Thank you, Summer. We'll see you in the future. Gene, thank you for being on, and until next week, everyone, we'll uh, see you later. Keep it in the air.